now we turn to today's show, which is also going to be a really good show. In our first hour, we're going to speak with Ariadna Phillips of the South Bronx Mutual Aid, uh, which is working closely with uh, the hundreds of mig- migrants that have been bused from New York, from Texas to New York City at the behest of uh, Texas's uh, governor. Uh, in in the second half of the show, we'll hear hear from State Assemblywoman Yulene New. She is carrying the progressive banner in a wide open race for New York's newly created 10th congressional district, which encompasses lower Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn. Uh, the latest polls show new running second in a field of 15 candidates, trailing only Dan Goldman, a former federal prosecutor and heir to the Levi Strauss fortune. So we look forward to talking to her in the second half of the show. Right. And, and as John just said, um, Ariadna Phillips, who is here with us today and we'll go to in a moment, um, founder of South Bronx Mutual Aid, also involved in Ice Watch New York City Network, um, has been on the ground at bus stations around New York City as as migrants arrive, asylum-seeking migrants coming from the southern border of Texas, sent from Texan Governor Grave Abbott from Texan border towns, you know, just after they cross. Um uh, there's a lot of question as to people's willingness. People are calling this kidnapping. Um, there are now allegations that uh, migrants are asking to get off the bus before New York and the bus driver is refusing. So we'll have some questions about that. But Ariana has been on the ground um, assisting these people, helping them get resources, offering um, a little bit of welcome uh, amidst a, a pretty horrifying situation. So welcome Ariadna and we're going to um, go to a quick clip here first um, of um, someone who arrived, a man from Caracas who wanted to remain unnamed but spoke with our reporter Ken Lopez on Wednesday. Three buses arrived on Wednesday to Port Authority, correct? We've, <laughs> I, I want to be careful about saying all of the buses and where they arrive, but I can say that We've had many days of multiple buses arriving. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been hundreds of people a week, I think, is a fair estimate to give on on the scope of what's happening. Right. And I think it's been about 4000 since May or so. We'll we'll get into that a little bit more later. Let's go to this this clip from this this man who just arrived from Caracas, Venezuela. travesía ya hoy de 41 días. Tengo 41 días desde que salí de Caracas. Eh, llegué a la selva del Darién el día aproximadamente 5 de junio. De ahí salí eh, cinco días después. Llegamos a un refugio en Panamá. El día, ese día, ese mismo día tomamos un autobús hasta la frontera con Costa Rica. Costa Rica ya dormí en un hotel, ahí todavía tenía algo de dinero y después eh, pasé a la frontera con Nicaragua y ahí a Nicaragua a Honduras, Honduras, Guatemala, Guatemala, México, eh, llegué al Río Grande el día sábado a las 2 de la madrugada porque la, las autoridades de México de, deben poner a uno a caminar, no puedes tomar un bus, no puedes tomar un, un taxi, entonces hay que caminar, caminamos tres horas y media para llegar hasta Río Grande y ahí nos entregamos a, la, a los patrón, al ejército en la frontera. 
It's been 41 days since I left Caracas. I arrived in the Darien Gap jungle on approximately the 5th of June. I left from there five days later. We arrived at a shelter in Panama that same day we took a bus to the Costa Rican border. In Costa Rica, I slept in a hotel. I still had some money. Then I crossed the Nicaraguan border from Nicaragua to Honduras, from Honduras to Guatemala and Guatemala to Mexico. And I arrived at the Rio Grande on Saturday at 2 in the morning because the Mexican authorities make you walk. You can't take a bus. You can't take a taxi. So you have to walk. We walked about three and a half hours to arrive at the Rio Grande. And from there, we turned ourselves into Border Patrol. Right. And so that's where a lot of these people are coming from. And explain to us what you know, Ariadna, of what happens when they arrive at Border Patrol and then how they get up here and how people are uh, that they're coming here or not. Sure. You know, I want to be clear. Everything that I'm sharing is based off of the accounts that we've been shared on. So, you know, we we have a diversity of understandings of what that may involve. Um, But the things that we understand from what we're being told, you know, people are you know, held in, in migrant detention centers. And then there is some mechanism by which they are told that if they want to board a bus, they have to sign a piece of paper. Um, and the people that are telling them this are people that are armed and wearing military style camouflage. And they don't necessarily know what's on the piece of paper, but it's the form that has been circulating in press that is like a hold harmless form and claiming that the person is consenting to being bused um, from Texas to, in this case, New York, um, several people, I would say probably dozens of people that we've spoken to in the last week. So they didn't know what they were signing. They didn't know what was going on. They just were told that if they wanted to get out of the detention center, that they needed to sign that piece of paper. So then, you know, they're loaded on the buses. And in many cases, they're also not aware of where the bus is heading to. So it sounds like this leads to a lot of fearful, you know, experiences for people because they're on a bus, they're not necessarily provided what we would consider to be adequate medical care. We've heard of numerous accounts of people being ill on buses and they did not have access to their medication that was, you know, like necessary for their conditions. Uh, or in some cases, they were being given pills or medications and there was no explanation what that pill or medication was for. So, you know, again, we've had situations with diabetes, hypertension um, and other, you know, necessary medications that were not given to them and then other folks that you know their 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 conditions were were pretty serious by the time they reached us and got off the bus we also understand that if this was governor abbott's intention to send everyone to new york that's actually not what's happening that the number of people that enter that bus in let's say texas are not the same number of people that get off the buses here in new york so people are getting off the buses all over the country um and it's alarming because, you know, there, there's not necessarily a sense of what's happening to them. We are fielding phone calls now um, from all over the country where, you know, things were going on. People were separated from their families or maybe they were fearful because they didn't know what was happening to them. Again, you know, what I'm describing is akin to human trafficking. And so then we're trying to reunite families that once people have gotten their bearings and figured out where they are, then, you know, there are families that have been separated at the migrant detention centers that one bus went first and it may have had the fathers as an example. And then now several days later, the mothers and children are being sent. So there's so much complexity to the situation because families are not necessarily traveling together. People are being separated from their loved ones. They were separated in migrant detention. They get here. And once we receive them, 
as we're trying to get them shelter, there's more complexity in that because families are not necessarily being maintained together, depending on what type of documentation the families may or may not have. You know, a lot of documentation is taken from them in migrant detention, identifying documents, and that could include, you know, marriage certificates or any type of partnership documentation. So it's super complex once they arrive here. You know, there are many moving parts to try to reunite families, get them together to where they had either intended to go or to receive them all here in New York if they intend to stay here. Um, but connecting them across different forms of transportation, including the buses, but not limited to the buses that you've heard about in the press. Um, and then in some cases, if they're, if the lodging that is being offered to them by the city has proven dangerous, you know, a number of people have been assaulted going into the shelter system here. And by a number, I mean dozens. Um, and have fled, then part of what we are, you know, involved with now in a wider, you know, landscape is sanctuary, you know, coalition forming, just having sanctuary locations across the city um, for people where the, you know, shelters have not been the safest outcome for them. Or, you know, when we've had concerns about what was happening at intake across multiple locations um, for city shelter systems, having just a safe respite space, for example, to do a medical check or to give food or for people to use a bathroom, because in many cases they have been traveling for days without access to that, without access to adequate food, shower, facilities, cleaning, personal hygiene, and, you know, toiletry care. So yeah, there's, there are a lot of moving parts to the, to the support and the care that we are, you know, the mutual aid network is part of providing. And we want to hear more about that now. We're going to ask more about it um, in a minute here. But I, I, I'm quickly curious, um, you know, you said that some people have gotten off the buses. I have heard of other accounts that someone asked to get off the bus and was not allowed to by the driver um, and f- felt unsafe like that. I mean, there, uh, um, you know, someone told reporter um, um, America Faggy, we are finally free. We are coming in a bus that was like prison. Um, so I'm wondering if you know who is driving the buses. Is it a uh, is it a is it a third party company or you know? So the only thing I can say I know about certain buses is that they seem to have a variety of sources. So there are bus companies that seem to have to sign non disclosures, and so they're not marked. Like they're not there's not a company that's marked on them. They, the ones that show up that seem to be arriving uh, directly through some form of government intervention are not marked. They seem to be, you know, privately contracted and there's some sort of NDA involved that they're not disclosing anything else about who they are. Um, there are other buses that I would call like reunification buses where other groups have intervened, uh, mutual aid groups, sanctuary groups around the country uh, in certain locations. And as people are coming in to those places, so let's say they jump off a bus, then there may be folks that are reconvening with them wherever they jumped off the bus and then getting them a ticket so that they're directly coming to, you know, our people to reunite with their family if some you know, members of their family have already reached New York. So I'd say that we've seen that with private carriers. I don't want to reveal their names, but they're private carriers that um, allies of ours, you know, allies of this work now nationwide are, are trying to make sure that if families have been separated, they're reuniting them and then just getting tickets on private, you know, buses to be able to, to so they would just, you know, kind of blend in with any other bus that's arriving. So that's my mention. You know, there, there are different ways that people are arriving. Um, 
yeah, I mean, there. If you can move a person in a certain kind of way, that's how people are being moved here. So I just want to be clear that the scope is wider, even than what maybe has been illustrated so far. You know, this is a pretty profound network because of, you know, in particular, the family separation issue that happened at the migrant detention centers and who is and who is not sent on each bus. Right. And we're, we're speaking with Ariadna Phillips of the South Bronx Mutual Aid uh, here on 99.5 FM. Uh, Ariadna, uh, can you uh, describe a little bit more uh, how uh, South Bronx Mutual Aid is is joining in to uh, help uh, the migrants as they arrive and also the larger uh, grassroots networks uh, here in, in the city that are doing the work alongside you all? And also, can you talk a little bit about the, the work that has gone into uh, creating uh, both South Bronx Mutual Aid and other other groups like that? Uh, I mean, you can't uh, do something like you're doing now. Um, you can't just pull that out of the hat. How did that uh, come about? Sure. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll start from beginning to just things I want to clarify, because this has definitely come up in different spaces. Um, the name of our organization, South Bronx Mutual Aid, should not be used synonymously with all of the mutual aid collective efforts that are happening right now. You know, we are we're one player in the game, but you know, the way that mutual aids tend to organize or mutual aid collective efforts are, it is a collective. And so you have a lot of different folks that are on the ground, you know, that are agreeing to organize under certain principles, right? Under certain community guidelines and boundaries, but it is autonomous. It's horizontal. So we're not, you know, I, I'm willing to speak, you know, kind of more publicly about what this is, but that, you know, should not in any way, shape or form erase the fact that this is a, massive collective effort of many different um, entities, mutual aids, autonomous individuals that participate in this and are just, you know, sort of agreeing to organize under certain operating styles um, horizontally and, you know, with, with certain abolitionist frameworks in the work that we're doing. Um, so that being said, let's say rewind. So the, the work that I would say I've done or sort of collectively been a part of that goes back several decades um, since I became a teacher. So, you know, that takes me back to graduating, you know, from college or maybe even during college or before. Um, but we didn't give a name to what it was that we were doing. It was more the mechanisms when, you know, I've heard people say, you know, oh, that's mutual aid or, oh, that's, you know, this Bronx mutual aid. I'm like, well, it's not trademarked, guys. It's more of a it's more of a practice, right, of how you practice, how you're going to support community care. So, the work of supporting community care where it's not meant to be hierarchical. You have the same people that are benefiting from certain work are the same people that are doing the labor themselves, right? So it's a collective effort where you are benefiting from it, but you are also putting in the work. There's not like a top-down person, like an executive director or CEO or, you know, like you, you have coordination and you have a certain degree of, I guess, egalitarian behavior, right? So that's what I was doing even with the, the parents of my students and their older siblings from the time that I first began teaching is I don't want to be the one point that everybody comes to me and says, okay, can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? The idea is we are supporting each other to build up those skill sets so that we are helping ourselves and that we are helping each other and that we're organizing together for a greater good. So that's been going on, at least in my world for several decades, but I'd say when the pandemic hit, that's when a lot of the families that I was delved into already in the South Bronx, um, you know, in education, you know, my phone was ringing off the hook of people just saying, I don't have food. We are not going to be able to pay our rent. We've lost all of our income. You know, a lot of the folks that I've taught and worked with um, in organizing and teaching, et cetera, 
the, the bottom just fell out during the pandemic. You know, we hear this from all over, but it was truly bad in the South Bronx. Lots and lots of folks are immigrants. And so that's when I, I guess I could say there was a certain degree of giving a name and an identity to the work that was already happening uh, so that we could have uh, a rallying point of what this is and be able to share as a collective, right? What are these organizing principles? What are we agreeing to? And how are we building this out? And what are our, what are our focuses on, right? Because sometimes a collective may just have one focus. Like mutually collective might just be on healthcare. And, you know, we went at everything. We went at housing. We went at um, medical care actives. We went at food. We went at, you know, immigration and immigrant rights, like all of the above. If it's something that's going to affect you for your immediate survival, I can say that that was really the scope that South Bronx Mutual Aid was, was, was heading during the pandemic because so many other things shut down. So many other, you know, places that you might go for assistance just were, were not accessible. And that also led to us just being part of a wider mutual aid network, which is to your point, how any of this is even possible. Because at this point, I don't draw a division and say, oh, well, this is where South Bronx Mutual Aid starts and ends. And then this is everybody else. Like, no, we're all in it together, you know. And and I'd say that the same folks that may be participating with us may be participating in additional collectives. And we come together over causes, issues, you know, incidents. Like a lot of us have worked together previously in the community fridge world. A lot of us have worked together previously responding to the Twin Parks fire in the Bronx. And that we're working together, you know, in this massive ecosystem because of the massive scale of what's happening with the migrant buses. So I just want to say that is that, you know, I've heard this a few times where they're like, oh, you know, they're leading this or they're doing that. I'm like, we are just one cog in this massive wheel because it takes so many people and so many specialized networks, right, to address the medical needs, the housing needs, the legal needs the intake needs, right? So we need people with backgrounds in social work, medical, legal, um, perhaps government experience, right? We need everybody um, to be right. able to be supportive of, of this type of scale of effort, right? It's like, a, it's an entire resettlement, you know, operation happening with at this point, hundreds of people every week that are coming in, and then hundreds of people that need additional follow-up support. And at this point, also just organizing support so that they can self-organize and, and better support each, you know, round of people as they come in, because that's also a sustainability issue. And, uh, you know, what we believe in, we believe in the people that are affected are the people that should be making the decisions are the people that should be organizing. And, 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 and all of that organizing takes constant dedication, communication, keeping up of relationships, but obviously it's, it's possible. And, and um, I think we've, we've heard quite a few reports that, uh, that after um, a hell of a journey, there is a lot of solidarity upon arrival, which, um, you know, that, that I think that means something. So, uh, but, you know, last time we spoke because Ariadna joined us last week and then we wanted to hear more about what's going on this week. Last time we spoke, you had, um, sort of, uh, spoken with the network coalition, you know, that is on the ground here and, and then that is, that is assisting, you know, um, uh, sort of later upon arrival. And, uh, you said that there was, you know, um, you were going to bring together tenants' rights demands and groups and, you know, the, the migrants who are arriving now and how they are tenants now at these shelters as well. Could you explain if that has been progressing any further? Any updates for us about that? Sure. I mean, I guess I can say that it is exceptionally important to us that the people that are impacted are also the voices that are being heard. 
you know, a lot of times this becomes very hierarchical and they want to look to one person to be the spokesperson or the agent of what's happening for whom. And so part of what has been, you know, involved in all of this is, yes, we have volunteers that are on the ground, but a lot of the, the asylum seekers, after we've engaged, after we've talked, it's like we're trying to provide an education around organizing to say, this needs to be you, right? Like this needs to be you in the shelters. This needs to be you if you guys flee the shelters. This needs to be you if you're in sanctuary spaces. This needs to be you collectively deciding what your demands are, right? Because it shouldn't come from us. It should come from the people that are directly impacted by these experiences. So I'd say to your point, that is for us, the inherent focus of all of this is that it's not just us saying, oh, this is what we think is best, right? That wouldn't be mutual aid. That wouldn't be organized around our principles. This is us going to the people directly affected and saying, want to be a part of this? Can we show you how to use these tools? Can we have you be a part of these conversations? Can you start handling some intake and onboarding and helping share out rights and helping share out with people what the things are that we've learned in this process so that you can spread word, you know, to others in the shelters and self-organize and self-determine what you think are the demands that you have. And that relates to housing, right? That really, you know, we, we had a press conference with a lot of uh, the folks that are our newest New Yorkers. And that's how it was very important, ensuring that it's not just us you know, speaking as activists or however you may see us, but people that are living this are showing up the second day, the third day after they've arrived going, yeah, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because my brothers and sisters that are coming as refugees need to understand what's going on and need to hear everything that I've heard so that we're all taking care of each other, which to us, like that's the whole point, right? Is that this is a, a collective effort, not just from our end, but it is developed with the people that are immediately impacted. And speaking of, uh, you know, efforts to help the migrants uh, from the other end of the political spectrum, uh, from the on high uh, at City Hall. Uh, how is the um, Adams administration and the city government uh, responding at this point? Are they doing any better than when we uh, last checked in? I heard that sigh. <laughs> I'll say this. I think that there are individuals that are doing their best. I think that there are individuals that believe in ensuring that the support that's needed for everybody that's arriving and for their safety and health and well-being, I do think that there are people that this is their priority. I think that there is a more complicated web of this that involves public relations, what story they want to put out there, um, the erasure and you know, co-opting of the work of grassroots movements and mutual aids, trying to deflect whatever the reality is in favor of putting forth maybe a major big name nonprofit industrial complex type of partner. And so I'd say that it, it's a complicated answer. I can say that, that there has been, there have been plenty of words thrown back and forth that seem to uh, push towards removal of mutual aid support and, and intervention and organizing, but we're not going anywhere, right? Like we're, we're going to support, you know, our brothers and sisters that are refugees that are coming in, regardless of what those opinions are, you know, and we're going to support for folks to, to self-organize as well. So there are plenty of things that get said and, you know, plenty of those things can turn out to be disappointing. But at the end of the day, I think many of us look at this as an opportunity 
for all New Yorkers that are unhoused, all New Yorkers that are unhoused, whether they're migrants or they've been in the social system, like there needs to be change. There's a very broken system at hand. You know, these human rights abuses did not just happen yesterday or the first day that migrant buses arrived. So I think that we're looking at this entire circumstance and going, you know, our interest in this is not making this pretty. Our interest is in making, you know, safe, permanent housing available for all New Yorkers. Right. And um, in, in our last 30 seconds here, Ariadna, just tell us quickly if you know how long this flow will continue uh, of people incoming and how people can stay updated or get involved if they want to. Sure. So there are a couple of places that people can follow. I'd say if you want to follow South Bronx Mutual Aid on Instagram, uh, NYC Ice Watch on Instagram. We also have organizers from Word Up Books. Um, uh, Mariposita that you know on Instagram find us you'll see our posts and there's a lot more information there to to get in contact with us and sign up and be a part of, of what we're doing okay great thank you so much Ariadna Phillips from South Bronx Mutual Aid and New York City Ice Watch you can get in contact on Instagram at South Bronx Mutual Aid or NYC Ice Watch or at Mariposita thank you so much for joining us on WVAI 99.5 FM and we look forward to speaking with you again We're going to go to a short break, music break, and we'll be right back.